I think we both don't know what you're talking. I don't know what you're talking. Do you know what he's talking okay. about? No, Dave? I don't. I don't know what you're talking well, about. Dave. Okay, well, never mind. We'll definitely <laughs> cut that out then. But. Yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Redwood. As always, I'm here with Gabo. Yo. And with Davis. Hey. So for this week, we did something a little bit different. We watched two films. We watched Nomadland, which came out in 2020 and won Best Picture in 2021, last year. And we watched a short film that you can find on YouTube called Wasp, which came out in 2003. And Wasp won the Oscar for Best Short in 2004. Oh, I didn't know that, Davis. Both of these films deal with working class women and the hardships they endure under capitalism. And both of these films, in their own ways, show us the patriarchal aspects of capitalism, which often relegate women to a position of being dependents on men. If we start with Nomadland, we have Frances McDormand playing Fern. And Fern is a working class wife to a husband who's a minor. She loses her husband. She ends up losing her job at a factory that shuts down. She loses her home and she ends up moving into her van. And the film is about her journey as someone who begins living in her van and ends up meeting a sort of loose community of other so-called nomads, people who are also in similar positions, who drive across the country, work temporary jobs where they can find them and live out of their vehicles. And I think we're going to have quite a bit to say about this film because there are aspects about it that I really like. But not long ago, I read a short discussion of the film in GQ, which described the film as a film that captures hardship, but is also sublime. And I think that's where we're going to, we're going to have something to say about this. That is the film does capture the brutality of capitalism in many ways. But at times, it also shows us the wonder of being out in nature and the, the beauty of being independent and free of debt and free of so many of the disciplinary features of capitalism. And so then it becomes a question of, is this film celebrating a life of living in your van? Or is this film saying that's where we're going to find freedom? Or is this film a brutal tale of the way capitalism, Amazon, uh, mining companies, etc.? exploit people in general and women in particular, which ends up placing Fern in the position that she's in. Yeah, I think that's definitely the central question. But to start with, I think something that it did well was this depiction of of the reality for working class people in a very current context. I actually worked a few months at a magazine shipping warehouse that reminded me a lot of the warehouse we saw in, um, in Nomadland. And it's, it's hard work. I mean, my shifts were like 10 hours. I think it was 6 a.m. to 4. And you do also form really good bonds with the people you're doing this grueling, no-break work with. So there is that sublime side to it. But I do lean more on the side that this film celebrates it more than it criticizes it. Have either of you seen The Rider, which is uh, Chloe Zhao's 2017 film? No, no. I saw it in theaters a few years ago and I was totally blown away by it. And it is very much, it's very much in the same vein as this movie in the sense that most of the actors are portraying some version of themselves. And 
also in that it combines this brutal illustration of what it is like to be poor in America with a lot of beautiful imagery and scenery and maybe a little bit of romanticization of that. And it, it, was, it was interesting for me watching this movie. I, I almost wished I could watch it without knowing that she had directed the writer because I thought the writer was a truly incredible film. And I bet most people who watch both of those films would say that there's no contest and that the writer is the superior movie. But, you know, it, <laughs> it was a, a little indie film, so it doesn't, it doesn't get the recognition that one um, with a bigger budget and starring uh, a, a huge star like Francis McDormand, it doesn't get the same kind of uh, recognition that that one's going to get. But I guess what I'm, the, the reason I'm bringing up the writer right from the get-go is that to me, what I see in both of these films is that I think Zhao is really interested in showing us the way that people view the world. And I think a lot of times we want in the movies that we're talking about on this podcast, we want the movies to, to show something about the world that most people may not understand, right? And in, in a lot of ways, I think what her films do is put us in the position of these characters. I think it puts us in the position of the characters in a way that sometimes it's hard to recognize what exactly makes your life so difficult or the forces acting on your life when you are trying to survive, right? And one of the ways that people survive the brutality of capitalism is finding beauty where they can find it, you know, finding meaning wherever it can be found. And so to me, I, I think in some ways it does romanticize living in a van but I think it also points to, at some level, to the situation that created that precarity that she lives under, right? Um, virtually everybody in this film that we see is part of the precariat. You know, they're, they're people who don't have financial security and that's why they're living in vans. And so, I, I don't know, to me, to me, the way that she balances that, I think is pretty impressive despite the fact that there are lots of little moments where, where I got really pretty frustrated uh, watching it, you know? Um, I, I was frustrated with the characters for not acknowledging what I see as the, the reality. Um, but I think in some ways that is more honest, right? Because one of the things about this brutal capitalist world that we live in is that it's hard for people to become aware of where that oppression comes from. Deve the development of class consciousness in America has been an enormous challenge. And I think in some ways, that's what this shows. You know, that was really helpful, Davis, in many ways, because as I watched the film, I thought a lot about the conversation we were gonna have in relation to the film that won Best Picture the year before, in relation to Parasite. Because once again, I, I thought as a radical person, as a Marxian person, I can see this film and tremble with indignation at the brutality of capitalism. To see this woman living Definitely. in her van, to see her, as Gabe said, going to this Amazon factory to try to make enough money to travel to another location, to see her asking gas stations 
if she could sleep in their parking lot at night, asking, you know, the Walmarts of this world, asking these gigantic corporations who own all this private property, can I just sleep in my own vehicle on your asphalt? What this economy does to people, how it's dehumanized us, how it's given us so little options, how it's just relegated us to living in our vehicles. I think that's depicted in this film very powerfully. And it's very upsetting to someone like me. It was horrible to see. And I felt this is just wrong. I also saw, as David said, that she's making sense of her own life through her own ideology, which is very much a product of her upbringing in the United States. She's making sense of her situation through the way many Americans might make sense of their condition who are in that position. And so I could both feel the way she comes to heal and the way she grieves her husband's loss and, and the choices she's made in life through the scenes of nature, which are beautiful. I could see the wonder in nature through her eyes. And so in that sense, the director is doing something very special. But I could also understand why this film is going to win Best Picture, yeah. because it doesn't imply that the system is to blame. And it doesn't convey that we really shouldn't be in positions where we have so few choices that we have to live in our vans. I mean, that's just wrong. For me, my favorite scene of the film was conversation. I think it's in a Walmart, which might be some additional symbolism between Fern and I guess the family of a kid she used to tutor or a former student. Yeah. I just felt that to be so real. I felt like one thing this, this movie did really well was show how this version of capitalism that we're currently experiencing is leaving a lot of people behind in small town America, or even just decimating entire communities. Like it happened to this town in um, Nevada Empire. Yeah. Uh, Empire Nevada. I, to me, that was a, a pretty striking, yeah. um, we're talking about metaphor. Um, this, this town literally named after manifest destiny, right? It's, it's should be an emblem of American greatness uh, overtaking the land and, and American exceptionalism, right? And in reality, what is Empire Nevada? Emptiness, right? It, it's gilded. Um, all of the all of the promise of America was just a, a myth, you know. It was just it just evaporated. And <laughs> that was my one positive comment, guys. <laughs> because what I'll say about that is it didn't just evaporate. A tiny group of people did get extremely rich off of the production that happened in the Empire. And the movie doesn't give us any sense of that. It says we're all nomads. I think I think that's the final text that comes up. You know, everybody's just nomads on a journey. Some of us might decide to go on a camper, and that's beautiful because you get to see nature. Some of us might decide to work the nine to five. Yeah, we all just got to find our own way. And felt like that underscored the problem of what's going on today so much that it was hard for me to enjoy. I, I actually interpreted that uh, closing text pretty differently. Um, oh, well, but, and say what it was, because I don't think I quoted it exactly. I think it said it, the, that the film was dedicated to all of the nomads. Um, and it said like, you know, see you down the road or, or whatever. Uh, yeah. Was kind of the line from the film. And to me, uh, if we, if we do kind of, I think I want to give the, I want to give Chloe Zhao the benefit of the doubt here um, because I think she is doing something very intentionally. Um, and I think, again, what we don't see 
is any wealthy people. Right. This movie is basically, uh, wealth is, is basically absent from this movie. The son of um, her love interest, you know, he has a nice house and, and seems to have a, you know, a nice little farm or something. Um, but I, I would say in general, uh, wealth is just totally absent. And to me, that's, again, uh, indicative of the fact that she is putting us in this character's shoes where she, it's hard for her to identify that theft, that, that exploitation that you're describing because she literally can't see it, right? It is invisible to her. And so to me, that, that dedication kind of, I, I mean, I, I basically interpreted it, as it, interpreted it as everyone who is subject to a market for housing or other basic needs under capitalism is basically a nomad as well. So everybody in the working class is some version of a nomad. And I, I, I saw it as kind of a dedication to, to all of those people. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying, Davis. I think for me, I wasn't looking at the point of, oh, to the character that Chloe Zhao has created, wealthy people are invisible. To me, to Chloe Zhao, wealthy people are invisible because she didn't include them in her movie. Or not even just wealthy people, just like the existence of wealth, you know, the Jeff Bezos or the tycoon or whoever, that company that made its money in an empire. One other crucial moment where, and where I was left out was when he, her love interest had surgery, who supposedly has no money. We know how expensive surgeries are in this country. Who paid for that? We don't really ever get an I think it's implied the son did. So maybe the son is wealthy, but in other points, there's really nothing to indicate that. He's just a guy with a you know middle-class lifestyle and a house, an extra room. I think you're definitely right that that's a weakness. And actually, now that you're saying that, it reminds me we do see wealth in one other place. And that is her sister and her brother-in-law, um, who's a oh, real estate agent. Yeah, and, I've been mixing the two me, up. Yeah, yeah. To me, um, actually, I I think that is a problem because the implication is sort of that Fern opted out of that, right? Right. That that she grew up in a position of relative privilege and could have had that, but chose something different, and. That may be the case, right? There, there are people that that choose to sort of opt out of that lifestyle, but that's not obviously the position of the vast majority of working people in America. The vast majority of people that are part of that precariat that I'm talking about are in that position because that they had no option, right? They they had no chance to develop any sort of uh, financial security. I see what both of you are saying, but to build on what Gabe began telling us, which is the limitations of the presentation, putting aside extreme wealth, there's a framework that Zhao presents that places Fern in a position where one can walk away from this movie saying she's choosing the lifestyle that she's living. Because after all, she could accept assistance from her wealthier sister. She could move in with Dave and his family. And while we don't see incredible wealth in this film, it seems to convey that people who choose the more traditional, conventional, capitalist way of living somehow wind up like her sister or like, let's say, Dave's son. So when you start learning about Dave, so he's a guy living kind of out of his van as well, 
a guy who's working these odd jobs. I thought he was a really poor guy and he seems poor. And then he talks about his son and how he was never around for his son. And I imagine his son being almost like him, sort of a guy who works at Walmart. And then all of a sudden you see the way his son is living and you're like, wait a minute. Like I own a very small, modest house that I can barely afford. I'm in, I'm up over my ears in debt. You live in debt if you live under capitalism. You have to make significant amounts of money to live a comfortable life. And yet, if you look at the way Dave's son is living, did you guys see the the house that he had? Yeah, it was nice. And the property that he had. And you were like, wait a minute, what is this guy like a a really wealthy guy? And this he works at Apple. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> You're like, well, wait a minute. It, it, it mentions at one point that he was like a touring music, musician. Oh, oh, and they make so much money, don't they? <laughs> All the musicians we know, they're just raking it in. So what we're getting at here is it's not just that the characters are class unconscious, it's that the director seems to be class unconscious. I agree. Yep. The director is framing this as though if you dot your eyes and study in school, you'll probably wind up with a $500,000 farmhouse. No, working class people live harsh lives. And it seems to me the film wants to play it both ways. And on this theme, let's add what her sister tells her when she tries to compliment her about the choices Fern is making. Her sister says something like, what the nomads are doing is not that different than what the pioneers did. And when she said that, I thought to myself, Zhao is reifying an old nationalist trope of the United States. Once we start talking about the so-called pioneers and the settlers, if you look at the early colonists, what does the data we have show us? That maybe as many as two-thirds of them came over as indentured servants. So we're talking about people who are dealing with Europe's transition from feudalism to capitalism and are being squeezed in Europe and therefore will sell themselves as temporary slaves as they make their way to the Americas to try to find a way to survive. And then once they're here, they're going off into the wilderness to see how they can live. And so... There's something about the way we romanticize that, which fits with a nationalist way of thinking about the United States. Then what we have in that scene is a character trying to compliment Firm, framing her condition as one of not only choice, but in a romantic way. While there are certainly people in her caravan nomad community that one could argue may be choosing to live that lifestyle. Sure, as we'd all would agree, if you're living out of your car, sleeping in big box parking lots at night. Is that a choice you're making? And furthermore, should people be forced to have to make that choice? Should people be in this position? Yeah. When the sister said that Fern was part of an American tradition, it really struck me because <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, I, I guess she is part of an American tradition, but not the, not the settler one, not that sort of romanticized version. She's a part of an American tradition of people who can't afford land and are thus forced to be squatters or, or try desperately to figure out however to however they can survive. That's an American tradition and that she is definitely a part of. I think Zhao, what she wants to do is have us like and empathize with Fern and her character more so than she wants us to understand the conditions of people like Fern and those who are in that place. Because Definitely. One quote that stuck out at me was when she goes to the temp agency and she gives a resume and she's like, I want to work. So she's being framed as ideal poor person, you know, this, uh, right. not the imperfect, 
human poor person that is millions of us <laughs> in the United States. And when you do that, when you give us this, not flawless, but in her work ethic, at least maybe flawless character, you're really going to avoid so much of what makes the system so brutal to live under. And I think that's part of the reason why I suggested that we watch Wasp, because I actually think Wasp has some of the same limitations as Nomadland, but one place where I definitely felt it was stronger is that in the respect that I just mentioned, it definitely does not do that. The main character, Zoe, is human. She is a very working class person and wants to go on a date with a guy, something that is very difficult to do when you're raising three people on your own without money, without help from other family members. And I think that's something who, for people who aren't in that position, forget. And when we forget, it's, it makes it harder to empathize because we can say like childcare is available or, or this and that. Something as simple as finding an evening to go out with someone that you like is just impossible for so many people because of the economics of capitalism. I think it's useful to bring up Wasp because these films seem to be, in one sense, very different films. But on the other hand, these are films about working class women dealing with the hardships of capitalism. In Nomadland, Fern doesn't have any children. So she's traveling around the country by herself, which means she has to think about her own individual health, but she's not really a caretaker for anybody. So she's not responsible for other people's lives. By comparison in Wasp, we have a working class woman who is the mother of four children. And so she's in this position where as a working class woman, she doesn't have access to good childcare. She doesn't have access to support. And so she's on her own. And in some sense, Fern is on her own. But to link this to this theme of patriarchy, there's an interesting turn in Nomadland. I didn't actually see it coming, but I watched Nomadland with Wanda and she saw it coming. She saw how in the relationship Fern developing with Dave, that there was a tension there because while Dave seems to be a great guy who's saying, you don't have to live in your van, you can come and live with my son. And he doesn't say it, but as we've talked about, the guy seems to be loaded. Right. So you're not going to, you're going to have wine. You're going to have good food. You're going to live it up here. Just come to the farm, yeah. you know, come and move in. In fact, I think he says something to her, like, we have a, a guest house. Yeah, I thought he a said guest, guest house. house. I yeah, think he, he did. didn't even say a room. Oh my so God. He didn't even say like a room. No, you're going to have your own house on the land because yep. that's how rich my son is, whatever he is. And so what Wanda saw there right away was that tension that I've referenced, which is Fern is seeing that she can accept that comfort, but she's going to be then dependent on Dave. She's now going to be in this house where, as you can see by that scene where somebody hands her a baby right away, she's going to be like the surrogate grandmother of the house. I mean, they're going to be handing her babies frequently. She basically has a choice as a woman into this patriarchal capitalist society. Do you want to be independent? Okay, you can go live in your van, go figure out what parking lot you're going to sleep in tonight, or you need to find yourself a patriarch, a man whose house you can live under, but then you're going to be a dependent. I think part of why it doesn't, in Nomadland at least, is because exactly what you're talking about, John, this choice shouldn't exist. There should be more than that. But also, I would say the vast majority, it just doesn't exist. There is no get out of jail free card of poverty. And that is present in every person's mind who can't make the ends meet. And that induces anxiety. It has so many negative side effects that I didn't really feel at all watching Nomadland. I just kind of felt, you know, we were looking at nature a lot. 
And one thing that I really liked about Wasp is that I was pretty anxious the whole time. Like I was really feeling that that sense of dread that I think poverty creates. And that's, I think, why I liked Wasp more. Yeah, I, I hated Wasp for exactly that reason. I don't, I don't even know how to evaluate Wasp as a film because I was so fucking stressed out watching that <laughs> that I had a miserable 25 minutes. I guess that was kind of the point. And yeah, and, uh, yeah I, I, I really have no idea how to evaluate that. But what you're saying really just kind of makes me think what Nomadland does is puts us in this position almost as this very particular character living one exact life right and i think it doesn't really tell us much about the average experience and i also don't know how much wasp does that i i i'm still trying to decide does it help us get a view into a common experience or is that another hyper specific story that almost goes the opposite way and just reinforces negative stereotypes about working class mothers. Yeah, I think that could definitely be true. I just felt like Wasp had more of the appropriate vibe. <laughs> and Nomadland, you're right, Davis, but I think even if we just deal with the hyper-specific story of Fern, doesn't cut it for me because one scene that stuck out was when she has to sleep in her van and the gas uh, station worker comes out and says like you can't or not not you can't sleep here actually she says she says you're not going to want to sleep here tonight it gets really cold like dangerously cold and offers her an alternative that she refuses (laughs) right and for me that's where that that was one of those moments where i was so ready to love nomadland because i thought we were gonna really see the shit you know that like this is what it really is my memory is it basically like cuts she's just happy the next day you know we don't right she shivers for a minute but then right it's gone so like even if we're dealing with just fern and what she goes through i I felt like zhao leaves so much of the reality in a film that is kind of it's whole gist is that it's hyper realist but without the unfortunate reality of it i think and yeah yeah without the brutality of poverty right it, it shows us the shitting, but not the shit, you know, right. like yeah. it, it basically skips over yeah. all the shit. Yeah. And we began talking about Wasp and the way the film makes you uncomfortable. The director, that's Andrea Arnold. She's accomplished something very powerful in such a short film. I was extremely uncomfortable also watching that film because I was waiting for one of the kids to get run over by a car. And I thought this is going to be horrific when one of these poor little kids ends up dying in this context. And I also think then it asks us as the viewer, it asks us to interpret that. And I think this is going back to both of these films, which is as viewers, we're interpreting these, these pieces of art. We're interpreting these films. And I think if I put on my Marxist cap, I watch Wasp and I say, look at the way a patriarchal capitalist economy puts this woman in a position where she can't experience any of the comforts, any of the products that capitalism produces. She's in a position where She wants to go out to have a drink. She really can't do that. And the way she ends up doing that, as we watched in the film, is putting the lives of her children in danger. And so then it becomes a question of how do we interpret this person? If we acknowledge that people who have few choices can often make bad choices, how do we talk about that character? You know it's a rough situation when a Millwall supporter is saving the day, which is the the end of (laughs) Wasp. (laughs) 
Well, I. What I think, does he do think, for a living? I, well, that's the thing is that I think Wasp is a pretty powerful window into a family living in poverty because it's interesting to me that you say that, Davis, because I didn't see him saving the day. I, like, I guess they're driving away in a car together, but in no way did that rid myself of the anxiety and dread that I was um, feeling throughout the whole film. I was like, this is not a happy ending. This is uh I guess I was just thinking at least they had Chinese takeaway. At least they weren't like literally going to bed hungry. Right. Um, and, and she was out of money. So I assume he paid for it. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, saving the day in, in the most limited sense possible. So yeah, to your question, John, that's really the crux of it because I know liberals who watch that film will say her, her children need to be taken away from her. She's not responsible enough to have custody of her children. And I see why they say that. I like this film because I watch and say, we need to have free universal health, uh, child care. We need to have public housing. We need to change all the conditions that are allowing this awful situation to come to be. So yeah, I, 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 I guess that's just where I fall. I don't really have a good answer to your question, John. To me, it's really interesting that you bring up public housing because I think that takes us right back to Nomadland. Right. Um, one of the striking things that she said uh, that really stuck with me was she was telling the um, girl that she had tutored that you mentioned in the big box store. Um, she said, you know, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Um and if you read the academic literature on homelessness, um, most of those people don't use the term homelessness. They use the term unhoused, yeah. right? Because it shifts, places the emphasis on a different part of it. Instead of it being the person who is homeless, it is a system that has failed those people. And, and so I think in WASP, it seems like she might actually be living in public housing. One of the few- right bits of security that British people have that True. Americans don't is actually a relatively robust and available system of public housing. I think well, just to add on to my previous comment in response to your question, John, one thing that I, I was saying in favor of it, of WASP, is that um, try, try to think about how I want to put this, but I mean, it's, it's just a, it's a complicated story and I, I think that makes it a good story, but I, I think it, the, the, we do get a sense of how much she does care for her children. And if she had those things that I mentioned available, this situation wouldn't probably exist. So that's why I lean towards, I think my interpretation of it rather than the, I, I guess, the more, uh, the, an interpretation of one that is more condemning of her. I don't know. For me, I, I think I struggle with this. I'm not a parent. Actually, none of us are parents. Right. Uh, right. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. which probably uh, Influence it, yeah. influences this totally. discussion. Um, I think I agree with you about the systemic stuff and also struggle with the individual decisions she's making. And, and, and maybe that's part of what the point of the film is, is that people who are seriously impoverished under capitalism are put in 
really, really difficult situations. Maybe not impossible situations. She does have a choice still, but not good situations at all. You know, she's basically forced to choose between being a good parent and having any sort of internal life for herself. And the reality is that she's not going to be a good parent if she has no internal life for herself. If she can't recognize the value of her own life, she's not going to be a good parent. Well, one, one quick thing, John, because I, I know you want to say something about that, is I'm thinking of the people who might say she needs to have her children taken away. And why I am against that is because people saying that often have never had to make the choices that this that the woman in this film were seeing make. Like, I know, you know, even being middle class in the U.S., becoming a parent means giving up so much and really living for another person. But I still don't think it's comparable to the amount of freedom that is taken away from you or that you're, is not available to you when you're a parent living under the kind of poverty we see Zoe is. When I saw Wasp, I kept thinking of the Florida Project film which if you saw the Florida Project, you'll see a lot of those elements in Wasp. And then I also see why Wasp won an award in the same way Nomad won an award. Right. And this is something we're always going to talk about in this pod, which is yeah. if your film is about condemning capitalism, don't expect to win an award. If your film is about collective action, God forbid, militant collective action about changing things, don't expect to win an award. If your film can be read as this is mostly your fault. And yeah, life can be brutal. You may win an award. It seems that that's what both of these films do. Life is brutal. And we can read both of these films as they're making individual decisions. And as individuals, they should quote unquote, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, make better decisions and come out of that situation. And so that tells me why these films win awards, why they're celebrated by the elites of our society. And that's what makes them problematic, despite the fact that they are pieces of art that are depicting the brutality of our lives. So I think what we're going to do for our listeners is just record that quote you just did, John, and play it when we get to this part of the conversation every time. <laughs> because that, it does feel like it's something that's going to be a, a common theme with, with the films that we're doing. And it's just so true. So next time, we'll, we'll just, I'll just say, play John's clip. <laughs> Producer, <laughs> cue, cue, cue it up. Cue it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think Wasp and Nomadland, I'm really happy we did them together because in this genre of film that we keep doing, it seems to be on two different ends of that spectrum. One romanticizing poverty, another in the least generous interpretation of it, demonizing the people living under poverty, while both you know, showing all the structural things that we as Marxists can see. And so for me, saying that and saying that I not a fan of either that I wish we had something more. I will say that I prefer the wasp end of that spectrum, I think, than the no bad land end of the spectrum. I think we're all in agreement. Yeah. And I don't know about you guys, but like, I'm glad I watched both films, but honestly, I probably won't ever watch either film again. <laughs> Same. Yeah. I'm glad I watched them though. And I think yeah. we should discuss them. What have we been up to? The only, thing, the only thing I had left on my list is uh, what was the deal with that Morrissey redemption bit in the beginning? Like, did of Morrissey what film? Uh, of Nomadland, did Morrissey pay 
Chloe Zhao to include a bit praising him, showing those tattoos in the beginning. I miss. I, mean, I don't even. Know, yeah, I don't know who that is. I, Davis. I, think, I think we both don't know what you're talking. I don't know what you're talking. Do you know what he's talking okay. about? Dave? No, I don't. I don't know what you're talking well, about. Davis. Okay, well, never mind. We'll definitely cut that out then. But well, I, don't, I don't know if we should. That's like, funny. Yeah. Look, look yeah. Up. yeah. <laughs> but you seem to have some insight here. Do you want to share it with everybody? And we could. He's the lead singer of the Smiths, the worker at the Amazon plant. And they were showing all the tattoos. It oh, like, that was she him. She had like a big Morrissey, his name tattooed on her arm and a bunch of quotes. And he is just like an incredibly unpopular guy. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, that's weird because that actually reminds me of one other problem I had with this is on the spectrum that I just mentioned, you know, you're kind of romanticizing the way people can live under under capitalism, under, in poverty. And I just felt kind of like it was even more uncomfortable for me because of this super successful actress and super successful actor playing at that, surrounded by people who are actually living those lives. Because from what I understand, they used, they didn't use professional actors other, other than those two. And, and I think that comes across in some of those like lunch break scenes. So yeah, to... That guess, got to me too. Yeah, like it, it really took me out of the film. I one of them when, the fact that one of them is Morrissey also pretending to be poor. No, it, it, it's not actually Morrissey. It's it's, oh. it's someone who I, I think that is a real worker at Amazon who seems to be obsessed okay. with Morrissey for some reason. Gotcha. In, in a way that makes her an extreme outlier. <laughs> Right, 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 right. So I just, I just thought it was a really weird thing, yeah, uh, yeah, a a strange thing to include in the film, to be honest. Uh, But if we end up including this, they got paid for that, don't you think? I mean, they had to have gotten paid. No, I'm sure, sure but they they didn't become Oscar-winning actresses, uh, right? The way Frances McDormand and the other guy. uh, I mean, yeah, it just. uh, In in some ways, going back to the writer, I, I think that's part of what made the writer so much more interesting to me is that the three main characters are a son, his father and his sister. And and they are actually playing versions of themselves telling the story basically of the son. And so it, in, in using those real people, using people that aren't professionally trained actors, you get, it is a very different experience watching that film. But watching this one, I was totally distracted by the fact that these people are meeting a celebrity. You know what I mean? When, when she's at one point, when, when Frances McDormand's character is having a conversation with Bob Weiss, who is also a real person, a, a real like RV right. advocate and stuff. We yeah. didn't really talk about him. I actually think he's like a really, like kind of an interesting person because he is actually very explicitly political. You know, he's the one that that they had the bit in the film where he's talking about the tyranny of the market and yep. stuff. Yeah. But when they're having a conversation at one point, they're literally like in chairs out in the desert. You know, you can tell that they're sitting and they're they're not directly facing each other. They're, it's like an interview for a documentary. You know, and so yeah, it, it it took me out of it having these people clearly interacting with one of the most well known actresses of you know our era. I. As, as much as I like Francis McDormand, that definitely took me out of the film. That reminded me of a film called Honeyland. Have you guys seen that or heard of it? So it's a film about a beekeeper in Macedonia. It's a kind of documentary style film, but that is almost shot as like a movie. 
the main beekeeper is not an actress. But what became problematic to me in that film is, so if let's say somebody has a toothache, I would fucking hope, but I doubt it knowing our capitalist way of life, I would fucking hope that Hollywood would just, that whoever's on set, right, would immediately tell that person, let's take you over to a dentist and let's get this taken care of. But guess what? I don't have that confidence in Hollywood to do that. I don't have confidence that the people who are going to make millions and millions of dollars off these films would take any of the people that they're using to produce this incredible work of art, that those people are really getting the full value of their labor. And I doubt it. When I saw Honeyland, there's illness depicted in the film. And when I saw it, I thought, tell me that these people hopefully took these people to a hospital to get treated, that it wasn't just like, well, this is part of the documentary slash narrative that we're creating because that becomes really, really disturbing. But I will say, guys, if Hollywood approaches us to make a film about us and they get Clooney, Brad Pitt, and Matt Damon to star as us (laughs) and and we're going to get paid, I'm all in, man. Yeah. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah. I was thinking the same thing with with Swanky, especially. Yeah. uh, Because Swanky seemed cool as hell. Like Swanky was definitely (laughs) the coolest character in that movie. And I'm like, this is a real person. Like, is she actually dying of cancer? And if she is, like, is her family going to get compensated in a way that reflects her contribution to this movie? Like, absolutely not. But like, she was far and away the coolest character. So like, I, I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to deal with that when it's, these real people, you know. All right, guys. So what have you guys been up to, my friends? <laughs> <laughs> so over the last few weeks, uh, Elizabeth and I have rewatched uh, what I think has got to be one of the best TV shows of the last few years. And that is Pin 15. It's Wait, a Hulu. Penis? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. It's called Pin 15. The closest to middle school out of the three. So I, I caught that one uh, right away. <laughs> yeah, that went, that went right over. Like, yeah. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Right <laughs> so it is a, uh, a Hulu original, I think. And it's about middle school. Oh, it's starring okay. two women, uh, Maya Erskine and Anna Conkle, who are basically my age, who are like in their early 30s and are playing themselves as middle schoolers, which sounds totally insane, but it is amazing. They make them look just like, now Now, part of this, I, I should say, is that neither of you were in middle school at the same time I was and the same time they were. And this is a very specific picture of middle school. And so maybe that's part of what makes me love it so much is that like, it brings back all of these memories that I never think about otherwise. It makes me remember so much more of middle school than I would normally, but they dress them up and make them look just like middle schoolers from like 2000. But all of the other characters are portrayed by actual middle schoolers, I guess. It's it's hard to explain why this show is so great, but basically the gist is the fact that they have adults playing middle schoolers allows them to show so much more of a real picture of middle schoolers than they would be able to with actual middle schoolers as the actors. It is very true to life for like 11 or 12 year olds, which makes it uncomfortable for people to acknowledge that that, that is what middle school is like, right? It, 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 it's, a really, it's a really interesting concept and it sounds bizarre, but it is truly 
one of the funniest shows I've ever seen and like incredibly heartfelt. Like it, 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 it genuinely, it makes me far more emotional than almost any show I've ever seen. Wow. Okay, so you, um, you said it, you're, re, you're rewatching it. Yeah, we, we, we had already watched it once um, oh. and we rewatched it because the second season, they were like working on it during the pandemic. So it came out that there's just like half of the first se- of the second season, sorry, half of the second season out released so far but yeah it is it's really really great yeah i can't recommend it highly enough so i am playing resident evil village right now and it is amazing and it's another one of these games like final fantasy 7 that really showcases the capabilities of the ps4 because i still haven't upgraded to ps5 since one i actually can't afford it right now and two i don't even know where i could buy it right now because i think it's like out still everywhere but Resident Evil Village is just amazing. And I had played Biohazard and I was concerned like a lot of RE fans with the shift to first person, but Biohazard was was just amazing. And I was also concerned because I developed motion sickness with some first person shooters, but what they did with Village was they allow you to turn off what's called camera wobble. Cause that's really what does it to me. So it's not even so much the speed of the X, Y axis. It really is about camera wobble. So if you have motion sickness issues, you can just shut off the camera wobble on RE Village. And it's just, graphics are amazing, the storyline. And it's just, I mean, it's it's just amazing. You guys are killing me with these video game recommendations <laughs> every week. I, I'm going to have like a list of 50 <laughs> games by the time I get to play PlayStation again. Well, it's been... <sighs> actually a while since we last recorded so i'm just having trouble choosing what i want to say so i'm just going to try to give a general because basically i've just give them your best yeah i felt like i um i've never felt so inspired so like ready to go (laughs) man i I think i've come back to life because everything that's going on in colombia and being able to participate in protests here also what's going on in Palestine and also participating in protests around Palestine here. And just on top of that, like Barcelona, Spain, just lifted all the restrictions so we can get together with our friends. There's no curfew. It's a normalcy that I've missed so much paired with the opposite of normalcy, which is the strongest, most militant resistance to some of the most repressive governments in our globe. Yeah, all of which has just had me so amped. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't sound like that because it's also meant that I'm pretty sleep deprived right now. But yeah, that's just my general where I'm at right now (laughs) that I'll do for my what I'm up to this week. Is that a pod? That's a pod. (laughs) That's a pod. That's a pod. I've been some cool music because you haven't heard crowd rock in a long time. When was the last time you heard Japanese jazz? Did you know there was Japanese jazz? You probably thought it was Japanese karaoke. No. There is Japanese jazz, and one of the hottest Japanese jazz groups is called Pistol Jazz, which is kind of what attracted me to. You know, I come across a name like that, I said, come on, I gotta listen to these guys' music. Pistol Jazz.